Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday, and welcome to another day of Cresta in the Afternoon as we continue this 2023 countdown. Lots to talk about over the next two hours. Starting off with a story from July. You may remember uh, an update that happened in the story of Rachel Den Hollander. I'm sure you remember that story. She was the first U.S. gymnast to publicly accuse Larry Nasser of uh, sexual abuse. Dozens of others followed. Big court case, that, he, and he's now uh, serving time in prison. And in July, a thing that didn't surprise a lot of people, Larry Nasser was shanked in prison. And the average person who heard that story, especially if you have read Rachel's book, or seen the uh, court testimonies or heard what this guy did, you think, well, good riddance, that you-know-what deserved it. And uh, that's not what Rachel said. Her uh, public on Twitter and publicly speaking continued to forgive him and also made a rather interesting point that she has, uh, not surprisingly, stayed in contact with a lot of the other victims of Larry Nasser, And to all of them, they knew this day was probably going to come one day, that, that he would be attacked. And it was just dredging the whole story up again and creating a lot of painful thoughts for them. And they were certainly not celebrating the fact that he had been attacked. And so uh, Al, in his first segment, has a commentary on that. We'll hear exactly what Rachel said, and he'll offer some additional thoughts. And then also in this hour, we uh, go back to a story that we talked about a lot over the last uh, few months of the year, and that was the situation in Israel. Only we don't look take a political angle on it this time, we take more of a uh, theological angle. And uh, how St. Paul prophesies the future of the Jews. Uh, in Romans eleven twenty nine, St. Paul writes that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So what does this mean for God's covenant with the Jewish people and the promise of the land of Israel? Uh, Dr. Larry Feingold joins us. He's the author of The Mystery of Israel and the Church, also is Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glenman Seminary in St. Louis, and you can find his essay, The Return to the Land of Israel, as an eschatological sign in the light of Romans 11 in the book Contemporary Catholic Approaches to the People, Land, and State of Israel. Uh, in the next hour, we take another uh, look at Israel with R- Raymond Ibrahim and also discuss the life of America's great Catholic revivalist, Isaac Hecker. All that is coming up over the next two hours after this news break. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 22nd. Today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The TSA expects to screen 2.5 million flyers today. Luckily, today's busy holiday travel day is off to a relatively smooth start, with just over 2,400 delays and a little more than 60 cancellations within, into, or out of the United States so far. That's according to flight tracker FlightAware. Officials expect over 39 million passengers to travel by plane this holiday season. Southwest Airlines says it has invested heavily in de-icing equipment, revamped its computer system, and has plenty of staff for this year. That comes after the airline last year saw nearly 17,000 flights canceled, hundreds of thousands of passengers left stranded, 
and mountains of lost luggage. The UN Security Council is approving a resolution to boost humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. The vote was 13 to 0 in favor of the resolution, with the United States and Russia abstaining. The final version of the measure does not call for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas and was unlikely to affect military operations in Gaza. This follows reports Hamas rejected a week-long truce deal that would have seen the release of 40 hostages held by the militant group. And a book that was taken out of the Watertown Free Public Library has been returned, almost 90 years late. The copy of the book Hilltowns of Italy by Edgerton Williams Jr. was checked out in January of 1934. Someone found the book and returned it, and based on the policy pasted in the book, the fine would have been over $650, but the library no longer charges late fees. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 18. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Larry Nasser, you might remember, was the team doctor of the United States Women's National Gymnastics Team who used his position to exploit, deceive, and sexually assault at least 265 children and young women. He's the central figure in the 2020 documentary Athlete A, which is about the scandal surrounding him. By the way, I recommend it uh, to you as well. Last Sunday, Larry Nasser was stabbed multiple times in the chest, back, and neck at the federal prison in Florida, where he's serving time. Now, I know most of us probably know he was convicted and was in prison, but I do think it's worth listing the sentences so you can get a feel with how hard the Book of Justice hit him. He was sentenced to 60 years in federal prison on December 7, 2017, uh, after earlier pleading guilty to child pornography and tampering with evidence. On January 24, 2018, he was sentenced to an additional 40 to 175 years in Michigan State Prison. This is after pleading guilty in Ingham County to seven counts of sexual assault. And on February 5, 2018, he was sentenced to an additional 40 to 125 years in Michigan State Prison after pleading guilty to an additional three counts of sexual assault in Eaton County. Sleazeball, scumbag, slime bucket, pervert, dirtball, pig. These are all words that have been used to describe this man who attended Mass regularly and was highly respected at my alma mater, Michigan State University. I'm sure I wasn't the one, the only one, who when heard of his stabbing said, Good. Glad to see that that SOB uh, got the kind of cut he deserves. Now, Rachel Denholder, who was the first to accuse Nasser of sexual assault and went on to become a lawyer, was included in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, is a committed Christian. And she was the recipient of the 2021 Kuiper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology and Public Life. I'm not sure what Rachel's first response was, but I know what her public response has been. When news of Nasser's stabbing became public, She made an important distinction. Justice is conformity to what is right. It should be pursued and fought for. She added, Forgiveness 
is releasing personal vengeance and desiring for the offender to find true repentance and peace. I am holding both, especially today. Well, that is the proper Christian response. And I felt a little better about my knee-jerk response to the news of Nasser's stabbing, when she also admitted, quote, I wrestled so often with the reality that this headline, that is, on the assault of Nasser, I wrestled so often with the reality that this headline would come. So many of us knew, and we carried that weight, that weight of personal vengeance. When we spoke up, too, far too many lives destroyed, including his own. Now, knowing what I know of Rachel Den Hollander by reading her memoir, dozens of news articles, the documentary, uh, actually two documentaries uh, dealing with her situation, I wasn't surprised that she would work toward forgiveness. Okay, But she did tweet something that really did surprise me. You know, she's regularly in contact with many women who are Nasser's victims. They form a kind of informal sorority. Uh, in 2018, ESPN awarded her and her fellow survivors the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. But she did surprise me when she tweeted, quote, None of the women I've spoken with are rejoicing today. We're grieving the destruction across so much. We're grieving the reality that protecting others from him came with the near certainty we would wake up to this someday. Continuing with her quote, for all our sakes, we, that is the victims of Larry Nasser, we desperately wish he had chosen differently. The farthest we can run from what Larry became is to love. That isn't at odds with justice, but it means we aren't finding entertainment value in destruction either. No one's life is a gift, which is a meme that's animated, no one's life is a gift. No one's life is a gift for us to mock, even when we are standing against the evil that person has done. Mocking the perpetrator is not the same as justice. All of us would appreciate it if you'd lay off the memes, gifts, and jokes. This isn't a joke to any of us. And then she turned to an intercessory prayer for Nasser. Larry, a quote, Larry, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. End quote. I'd say that was a model way of dealing with this kind of situation. I want to switch gears a bit, but I'll get back to Rachel's example. I believe we're now living in an America in which different groups are contending to form the new foundational moral framework for our society. I know people say we're in a pluralistic society. It's true, we are a pluralistic society, but our elites... Secular left, you know, Christian right, traditional Democrat, conservative Republican, libertarians, they are contending to turn America not into a pluralistic society, but into one which governs itself and lives its daily life 
on the basic moral norms that these elite groups offer. In fact, it's not clear that we can never be a principal pluralistic society because we've never really been one. I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. But in the mid-20th century, mainline Protestantism, that is the churches like the United Methodist, the Episcopal Church USA, Presbyterian Church USA, United Church of Christ, some of the names have changed. But these were the Protestant churches that had a more liberal theology than the evangelical or fundamentalist Protestant Christians. That mainline formed the moral framework for America through much of the 20th century. They began to lose their moral influence, though, in the 60s and 70s when they became identified with radical left-wing in American politics, and some denominations were even funding revolutionary groups overseas. With the Reagan Revolution, the more conservative Protestant groups, represented by Southern Baptists, National Association of Evangelicals, Pentecostal groups, holiness churches, they became more politically significant through the ladies, through the 80s and into the 2000s. That's when their influence, I think, seemed to peak. Now, they're still a major force within the Republican Party, but they never managed to exert the widespread moral force that the mainline Protestant churches had exercised earlier in the 20th century. Why? Because they made the same mistake that the mainline Protestants made, and that is, they let the more radical, unappealing voices in their movement come to characterize them in the minds of the American people. The American people are deeply mistrustful of what they perceive as politicized religion. The more overtly political a religious movement becomes, the less it's seen as a movement in which all Americans can participate. You know, um, American, evangelical Protestants worked hard to reach out to traditional black denominations, and they couldn't win them over because there's historical problems there. Historically, black denominations remember that the Jim Crow South was filled with conservative Protestants, and they didn't do much to overturn segregation. It's true that Billy Graham, uh, early on, stopped having segregated seating at his rallies, but that wasn't really the tip of the spear anymore. It wasn't seen as very activistic. Now, we're seeing the secular left vying for control, and so-called wokeism is powerful in the media. And we have certainly seen victories as they've redefined marriage to include homosexual couples, and they're hard at work in this gender ideology business. Will the secular left become the next group of elites that form the moral foundations for American society? I certainly hope not. And I have, I think that the more woke they become, the less appealing they will be. Uh, The American people do not, are not attracted by wokeism. And I'm fairly certain that Catholics and other Christians will continue to occupy elite positions of influence in our society. It'll be a minority presence, though. Uh, I'm fairly certain that Catholics and other Christians will not be able to grow their influence through political means alone. Why? For what I said earlier. Americans are very suspicious of politicized religion. But Americans are not suspicious of people who are known as carriers of grace. Americans are attracted to people who are willing to die for others. They're attracted to people who don't strike back at every provocation. They are attracted to those who pray for those who abuse them because the abusers don't know what they are doing. 
Look at how Americans responded to the forgiveness so quickly offered by Christians at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, back in 2015, when their pastor and some other members of the church were murdered by a white supremacist. And remember the American response to the 2006 West Nickel Mine School shooting, where the Amish parents of those children sought out the widow of the perpetrator to offer forgiveness and comfort, since she was now a sufferer of the same evil they had experienced. We remarked that these are exceptional instances. Well, they are, but they shouldn't be. We have a nation filled with those who bear the name of Christ. It seems to me the only legitimate way for Christians to exercise political authority in America is through service to others. The quest for power is a subtle subtle temptation. It often undermines those who seek it. Everyone seeking power claims that they seek power to do good. But we should be suspicious unless these people are already holding a reputation for doing practical good in the communities in which they are planted. Rachel Den Hollander's tweets remind us that Christians are called upon to be agents of grace and reconciliation. She's no pushover. She was called not only to push for justice for herself, but also for those who had been afraid to confront Nasser. And when the American people see Christians in public life acting to defend those with no hope, they will be attracted. And we may see, we may see the grace of God at work in Catholic and other Christian political leaders because they will be known not so much for exercising power over others, but for serving others. I'm Al Cresta. Why would God permit the devil to tempt his son in the desert? The symbolism behind those temptations, as provided by the Catholic Catechism, gives great insight into God's rationale. Jesus, driven by the Spirit, goes into the desert to live in solitude for 40 days. At the close of that period of prayer and fasting, the devil arrives to attempt to compromise Jesus' filial devotion to God his Father. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and Jesus rebuffs him three times. This is a recapitulation of Satan's seduction of Adam. Only this time he loses to the new Adam. It is also a recapitulation of Israel in the desert when the Hebrews provoked God during their 40-year sojourn. In contrast, Jesus is totally obedient to his Father's will. Jesus' victory over temptation is a prelude to his victory over sin on the cross. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Sixty on ten with Monsignor Charles Pope. The ninth commandment: You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We already discussed in the sixth commandment the problems of sexual sins themselves, but what the Lord is teaching here is rooted in the word covet. To covet means to inordinately or inappropriately desire something or someone, and in this case, the Lord is saying to us that we are in no way to covet, to look with lust at another person, particularly our neighbor's wife, but others in general, and that therefore all pornography and things like that have to go, all entertaining of lustful thoughts has to go, and God can help us by his grace to do that. And therefore, in this commandment, he summons us to take authority over our thought life and our sexual passions. The ninth commandment you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. The best. 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 Of Crestor in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 17. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas has, again, highlighted for many people um, the remarkable fact that Israel, as a state, as a nation state, uh, was dates from 1948, uh, technically. But the question is, what is the relationship of the biblical promises regarding covenant and land to the Jewish people? And again, I'm not saying that... Uh, you know, I don't have the same attitude towards this that a lot of evangelical and Pentecostal preachers have that tells us that we can uh, calculate somehow by the return of Israel to the land in 1948 uh, that somehow we can return, come up with the day and the hour of Christ's return. But I am concerned about this idea of the land because, frankly, uh, as a Christian for many years and as a Catholic for even more, uh, <laughs> I I never give this gave this a lot of thought, and yet when you read Romans chapter nine through eleven, Saint Paul gave all of this a lot of thought. Romans chapter eleven begins, "I ask then, has God rejected His people?" And then he says, "By no means." And then he goes and continues his argument. 
So what are those promises and uh, that were made to Israel under the Old Covenant? And um, in chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 29, uh, St. Paul also writes that the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. irrevocable. So what does that mean for the land? How should we see it? Well, you know, the, my guest, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, is Associate Director of Theology and Philosophy at Kendrick, Kendrick Lynn Seminary in St. Louis. And I just came across an essay of his recently called The Return to the Land of Israel as an Eschatological Sign in the Light of Romans Chapter 11. It's, in a, uh, it's an essay in a collection called Contemporary Catholic Approaches to the People, Land, and the State of Israel. And I knew uh, Dr. Feingold's work uh, from his three-volume uh, uh, were called the mystery of Israel in the church, and again, uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, material here, a great amount of work. And I thought, if I had a question about the land and its current status in Catholic thinking, I don't know who else I would be better to talk with. And Dr. Fungal, great to have you here. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Well, let, let's let's go to this. Um, in, before we go, you make a you make a point in your essay that you are talking about um, the land as an eschatological sign, and that you weren't really making uh, out to make any political statements uh, about this. Is that right? That's for sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a theologian. I'm um, looking at it from the point of view of um, Catholic theology, and and. And only that. Yeah. No, I think that that's good. And it's good to get that on the table here, um, mm-hmm. you know, what the limits are of what we say. Uh, I, w- I would venture to say that most Catholics, uh, you know, again, at a popular level, would simply think of the Jewish people as, well, um, they had their chance uh, to accept Messiah. They didn't. And then God kind of moved on and has the church now, and that's what he's interested in. And, um, you know, that's it's too bad, but, you know, Israel had its chance, and its disobedience meant it's now excluded from any special concern of God. And I say, that's, a, I think, a fairly popular understanding. Yeah, I think so. And, and But as you said, then... That doesn't seem to square with what St. Paul says in Romans <laughs> um, chapter 11, verse 29, right. Right? that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable, and God is faithful even when human beings are unfaithful. Yes, and I think this is what is really fascinating and ex- exalting. I love this. Um, Technically, this idea that God has um, rejected Israel and replaced Israel with the church is technically called supersessionism. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Tell, so tell us what a, that is. Technical term that theologians use. Yeah. Yeah. Just elaborate on that a bit for me. Sometimes, in simpler language, replacement theology. Sure. One could say. Okay. Very good. Um, you make the point in the essay here that it's in, that idea of replacement theology is incompatible with the biblical principle of God's fidelity, which transcends right. and is not annulled by human infidelity. 
Uh, you also point out that it's incompatible uh, with Romans 11, 28, and 29, which says that as regards election, the Jews are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And then you quote Nostra Tate 4, Nevertheless, God holds the Jews most dear for the sake of their fathers. He does not repent of the gifts he makes or the calls he issues, such as the witness of the apostle, which then goes to quote, Right, Romans and so that's 11. quoting again, or referring to yeah. um, St. Paul, Romans 11, 28, and 29. How? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, um, a foundation, it seems to me, for Catholic theology today, yeah. in reflecting on the significance of um, Israel in, um, in the Holy Land. And have, God hasn't rejected them, right, or revoked their covenant. How does that square with Catholic thinking through the ages? Um, so, there's always a tendency, um, a human tendency, to oversimplify. Sure. And it's easy in this case, I think, to fall into a tendency like that. And so, um, great theologians like Thomas Aquinas have always um, interpreted Romans chapter 11 as in the way that we just said, and then other verses of St. Paul that speak about the fidelity of God and the faithfulness of God. But generally, there was the widespread view that, yes, the Church had replaced the, um, the synagogue, or Israel, and therefore the promises um, given to Israel simply were transferred to the Church. And that's where over, um, it becomes oversimplified. And so the right... So this is going to take a little... Let me see if I can explain this yeah, go ahead. simply and clearly. The, um, it, the key, it seems to me, is to look at this from the point of view of biblical typology. So, in the Old Testament, many things um, that had a meaning in their own time and place point forward and prefigure Christ, the Church, and the sacraments. And so we can say the whole of Israel is not just events in Israel, like the manna in the desert, or the crossing of the Red Sea, or the um, Ark of the Covenant, but even the whole life of Israel, in some way, was prefiguring the Church. Mm. But that doesn't mean that it um, would lose its reason for being when Christ comes. It's still, so that's really, I think, the difficult thing to see, and the one I would want most our listeners to come away with. That, um, yes, Israel was chosen, Abraham was chosen um, 2,000 years before the Incarnation, to be the forefather of a people in whom God would become man. And so Israel's mission was to be the people of the Incarnation, in whom God would become incarnate, and preparing the way for him. And now people might wonder, after he's become man, and, and founded his church, is there still a point to Israel's election? And we would say, yes. Yeah. They yeah. continue to point um, to God's covenant, and God's fidelity, and to um, the one who became flesh in their midst. Um, and they're a sign, yeah, of God's providence um, till the end of time. That's how I would yeah. answer that. So um, the, the type, um, mm-hmm. again, in this case, the type being Israel, is not replaced by the reality right. that it prefigures, right? Um, right, but continues to point to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not by way of, you know, opposition, but precisely by way of um, preparation and fulfillment. And 
and it has its own reality um, that continues in the people um, descended from Abraham. Yeah. Is this the ages. so? Is this been this has been championed over the last generation? It seems to me by uh, popes. I mean, this is is this right. kind of a new Absolutely. a new so, and deeper understanding of the faith than we had prior. Right. Yeah. So this is a beautiful example of what we theologians call development of doctrine. Yeah. Something that's been there from the beginning. We could see it in. In Revelation, um, such as the, the verses we said of St. Paul, or simply God's fidelity to his covenant, but it's something that, um, as the Church ponders her revelation century after century, she comes to see in a deeper way. And, in, and very often it's events of history that help the Church to um, see things in a deeper way. And in this particular case, the incredible tragedy of the Shoah, or yeah. Holocaust, um, helps I mean, often in history it's that way. It's a heresy, it's some denial of the faith that requires um, the Church to defend something that previously maybe hadn't, she hadn't um, um, searched as deeply because she didn't have to defend or, um, or come to terms with, um, as, as in the generation after World War II. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is. I mean, the the Shoah uh, has really been a, a real shakeup for theology in general, Christian theology in general. But uh, in right. the Catholic setting, it's become also fruitful uh, in that it's right. forced us yeah, to so think. John Paul II would be yeah. the one, the Pope who most developed this, um, visiting several synagogues and um, making reference to Nostradamus um, about the Second Vatican Council's. And document on, um, on Judaism, but then making it clear that that applies to contemporary Jews, yeah. and therefore Jews who live in Israel, as well as those in the diaspora throughout the world, and that they are still um, the, um, the sons of Abraham, not um, rejected by God, whose covenant has not been revoked. Hmm. Now, this is, I mean, this is pretty exciting stuff. We'll have a... Mm-hmm. It's pretty exciting stuff when you think about it, uh, that we're seeing this happening uh, in the development of Catholic thought now. So, right, right. And then more recent popes, um, in particular Pope Benedict and um, Francis, have continued um, making those affirmations, um, if anything, even more strongly. And, um, and we have a series of documents also um, that develop that. And different dictatories clarifying. Uh, Larry, hold it there. We've got to take a break. Come back and continue the conversation. My guest, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, he's the author of a three-volume work called The Mystery of Israel and the Church. Uh, And then recently, though, I came across an essay of his uh, that has got me thinking about the reality of the land. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Are you longing to hear God's voice? 
Lord, Teach Me to Pray, the free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in, there are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? Christ is the answer. With Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said, um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 17. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest is Dr. Lawrence Feingold. We are discussing uh, the return to the land of Israel and what is its theological significance uh, for Catholics. And uh, we pointed out that the event of the 
Shoah, the Holocaust, gave rise to much serious soul-searching on the part of Christian theologians, including Catholics, and um, there's been a rediscovery of, again, passages from St. Paul, which have often been kind of glossed over. And the key passage, and it's quoted in Nostra Aetate from the Second Vatican Council, and that is that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, and that's St. Paul says that in the context of a you know, three-chapter argument about the status of the Jewish people now that Messiah has come and that many within the Jewish community have rejected uh, Messiah. So St. Paul is saying, well, what, he's trying to answer the question, well, what becomes of the Jews in the future? And so it's been rather an exciting um, time, because if you believe that the gifts and calling of God are irre- irrevocable, and that uh, Israel still has an ongoing covenant and promises associated with that covenant, the land is certainly a part of Jewish identity. Now, Larry, before we go back to this in particular, I, I want to talk about what can we think, uh, how, how, should we, how does this uh, return to the land function for us uh, in eschatology? But before we go there, I, I want to say there's also a, a view that um, when we talk about Israel's having uh, an ongoing covenant with God, there are those who say, well, that means, therefore, that there need be no um, presentation of the gospel to Jewish people. And um, they ha- basically, they have their own thing. So don't bother them. <laughs> what do you say to that? Yes, obviously, I don't agree with that. I'm <laughs> right. Jewish origin, and I've become Catholic, and it's the greatest blessing in the world. And <laughs> And so that's often called dual covenant theory is a kind of technical term. And the problem there is it's putting the two covenants on the same level in a way similar to replacement theology. And, and the point that I was trying to make earlier is that they're not on the same level at all. Right. How could it be? In other words, when if God becomes man and makes the new and eternal covenant, that is going to be on a level transcending um, a covenant preparing the people for the Incarnation. Right. And so they're not um, on the same level or plane. And Jesus became man for every human being whom he has redeemed on Calvary. And he's won the grace for every human being to receive um, all the grace that we receive during our life, and even if we don't know about that. Right. So I would say by the a twofold title, because he's the Son of God, and because he redeemed us on the cross, every human being has the right to know about him and what he's done for us, and especially those for whom he came um, by way of an, an obligation of his own very promise um, to Abraham and to um, his descendants, and such as David. Yeah, and so St. Paul, when he would uh, preach the gospel, would go first to the Jews in every particular place, the synagogue, and then he would present it to the Gentiles that were there. Mm, because they have a priority. So, yes, yeah. Jews, right. But of course, we have to be very um, respectful when we do that. Obviously, we don't want to proselytize, mm-hmm. but to evangelize. Right. And that means not putting any um, undue pressures, or um, not. Um, um, we can't fail to respect the dignity of their covenant. 
when we present the gospel. Right? So it's delicate to present the gospel, and it needs to be done in a way that really um, grasps um, the, we could say the glories of the chosen people that St. Paul enumerates at the beginning of chapter 9. There's our faith is the sonship, the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs, and from them has come um, the Messiah, Christ, God, above all forever. Yeah. And so yeah. when we present the gospel to Jews, we want to do it in that way, as no straight talking makes clear. Yes, yeah, very good. Um, John, you, you quote John Paul II <clears throat> back from his uh, visit with the Jewish representatives of the Jewish community in Mainz, uh, West Germany, uh, November 17, 1980. And I had never never seen this before, but he was making the point that the covenant uh, with Israel has never been revoked, and that he refers to the meeting of new covenant people of God with the old covenant people of God, and refers to it as a dialogue within our church between the first and the second part of the Bible. (laughs) I think that's that's really yeah. the, the the way we're talking about this. We're acknowledging that mm-hmm. there's a covenant there. It's real. Um, it's foundational. It it points, and what, what we're saying though is that it points uh, to this uh, I don't know, my, new covenant or renewed covenant uh, mm-hmm. that we refer to. And so we're carrying on the conversation uh, with the Jewish people, not as outsiders but as people who uh, understand the covenant with God. And, uh, right. yeah. Do you, do you think that, um, you know, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel in 1948, you, you take great care to, not to make sure that we're not necessarily trying to come up with a day-and-hour scenario here of when right. Jesus will That's return. really important. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because that can often be the way it's thought of in, evangel- in some evangelical circles. Right. And so I'm using the word, so I do call it an eschatological sign, but I'm using the word in a different way. And that's what I wanted and you to tell us. It can be an eschatological sign, even though it's centuries away from Christ's second coming. That's right. Because it's pointing in some way to his action. And an example of that was the destruction of Jerusalem 19 centuries ago. That was, Jesus uses that in his eschatological discourse as a kind of sign, a tragic sign. Yeah. And, and so we could see this return to the land as um, um, also a sign, not, not tragic in itself, although accompanied by tragedy, which is the continued strife in the land. That's right. And so just for me, going to, we lived, uh, my wife and my, our family lived in the Holy Land um, for a year in the 90s. And it was, we lived in the old city, and walking distance from the Holy Sepulchre. It was such a joy to be in the, in the Holy Land, and for two reasons, because that's the land where Jesus you know, walked and did his mysteries, but also because it's the land of the old covenant of, of, um, of the people of Israel, and all of God's action in the old covenant. And the prophets often speak of um, yeah, exile as a... Um, and in some way as a penalty for infidelity to the covenant in different senses, but speak of the coming back to the land as a, um, a wedding, as it were, with the land and its people. And so it's beautiful to see in, the, in Israel today that wedding, as it were, of the land and its ancient people. Yeah. But of course it's tragic right, to see the continual 
pain sure. and, and, and conflict that accompanies it. Yeah, I, there's the picture of Isaiah in chapter 62, where he's talking about the relationship between the Lord who indwelt in the land and, and the, and the right. um, it, it, it's got nuptial imagery. It's really quite shocking. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's let's talk about you know we have this terrible situation uh, in Israel right now, um, and Catholics obviously want to show due respect um, to the covenant. They want to show a due respect to this uh, return to the land as an eschatological sign. Uh, what does that commit them to in terms of? the Jewish people in Israel now. Yeah. And I would want to be careful here. And so the church allows different views on this, and you can see the different views in that volume that you mentioned, um, from which, um, in which my article is included. Mm-hmm. Right? So obviously Catholics have different views on this. But I think we would want to see that. And what I would, what I would want to say is that we can't simply... Um, see Israel um, as something, you know, without theological significance. Okay. Um, yeah. But what exactly that significance is, that's something that theologians can, can discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I see it in connection with um, a line from um, our Lord, um, when he, um, this is from Luke's Gospel, um, chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, and he's here he's uh, weeping over um, what he foresees will be the, the exile for 19 centuries of Jews from the land. And he says, great distress shall come upon the earth, wrath upon this people, they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles mm. until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Wow. Right? And so that was a prophecy, and it was, in fact, realized for 19 centuries. Yeah. Yeah. An exile from the from the land, but now that Jews have returned, it's interesting to ponder that last part of, of the verse until the time times of, of the, the Gentiles. Gentiles are fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. I think the times yeah. of the Gentiles is and Jesus speaks about. That's another eschatological sign that the um, church will expand the, according to the missionary mandate and to the ends of the earth. So and there are other eschatological the signs the then. The, it, right, are They're in the background of this discussion. The preaching of the gospel right, to the nations right. is one of them. Yeah, right, exactly. And it doesn't mean that the end is about to happen any more than when we see earthquakes and national disasters, natural disasters or wars, that the end is going to be tomorrow. Yeah, right. But there are signs that lift our gaze up from this world and enable us to see that there's a providential plan of God that remains very mysterious but is real. Right, right. Uh, what would be, uh, are there any other uh, ongoing eschatological signs that you can point to? Yeah, so for me, a very interesting one <laughs> is um, the, um, the fact that in our time, so all through the history of the Church, there have always been um, Jews who have come to faith in, in Christ and have become Catholic. Um, but in our time, in the last um, 50 um, and more years, um, we've seen an acceleration of that process. Oh. Very often, the um, Jewish believers in Jesus um, don't um, make it all the way into the Catholic Church. And so there are many who are um, 
called Messianic Jews right, right. Who, and believe in Jesus the Messiah, but aren't um, um, don't see the the whole um, claim of the of the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Um, but so I think that's an eschatological sign as well that the Catechism speaks about in a very suggestive way. In number, uh, find it here. Yeah, yeah. I don't have it right in front of me either. So, yeah. Talking, yeah, um, find, talking with Dr. Lawrence Feingold about the mystery of Israel and the Church, and in particular, discussion occasioned by uh, our attitude towards the land and the Jewish people. And uh, we've looked over, there's other, uh, the return to the land is an eschatological sign, a sign pointing uh, to the future. Uh, you also have the... Um, uh, an acceleration of uh, Jewish people who have, in fact, professed Christ uh, as Messiah, uh, even though many times they don't come into full communion with the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. Did you get, did so you the get, text is um, the Catechism 674. 674. And again, it quotes um, St. Paul's um, um, Romans 11. Yeah. And it says, the glorious Messiah is coming... Right, that would be the second coming, is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. So that's a quote from Romans 11. Yeah. For a hardening has come upon part of Israel in their unbelief towards Jesus. Yeah. In other words, St. Paul sees the fact that um, many of the Jews, and especially their leadership, didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah as also something mysterious, and that was also part in some way and mysteriously, of the divine plan. Um, a certain um, veil put um, until the time right when that veil would be taken away. That's right. That's right. Um, and he, yeah, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, St. Paul says, what will their acceptance mean? <laughs> Life from the dead. Right. Lawrence, we're out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Can we talk again on this? Sure. I'll give you a call. Thank you. We'd love to. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. We Catholics have lots of ways to pray. Novenas, litanies, meditations, you name it, we've got it. With so many ways to pray, there's sure to be a way that fits your family. No matter how you pray, though, it's important to remember why we pray. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, prayer is, quote, a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God, close quote. When we sit down to pray as a family, we're not just checking off another chore on our to-do list. We're helping one another deepen our relationship with God and each other. If you're not sure where to begin, try this. Before meals and family gatherings, say, let's remember to take a moment to be in God's presence. And then take even 30 seconds to praise God, to thank Him, and to ask for His grace and blessing for your family. For more ideas about praying with your family, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family.
To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks. My uncle used to have slot machines. Put one nickel in and it's empty. And I brought him home in a bag. And my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, I won him. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine. I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Thanks for being with us. In that hour, go to AveMariaRadio.net. You can follow up on those conversations. We'll have some articles about uh, Rachel Denhollander's Christian Witness. Her book's available in the online store. And uh, also, we can learn more about what Dr. Lawrence Feingold has to say about St. Paul and the future of the Jews. In the next hour, we learn about Isaac Hecker and also why Bin Laden's letter to America is suddenly so popular. More to come on Cresta in the Afternoon. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon, continuing this 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. If you weren't with us in the first hour, we looked back at a story from July when the infamous abuser Larry Nasser was shanked in jail. And if you're like me, my when I first saw that news, I saw good. I said good riddance. I think a lot of people around uh, the country were kind of thinking that. You look at the um, uh, ever enlightening <laughs> uh, place that is social media. Lots of uh, insightful comments were on there on various news sites. But the people who are actually directly harmed by Larry Nasser, the, the girls that he abused, had a very different outlook on it. And Al had some reflections on that in the four o'clock hour. You can find that in the Cresta Guest Archives. In this hour, we look at one of the, I wish I could say I was surprised by it, stories of the year. And that was in the midst of all of the uh, reactions to what's been happening in Israel and Gaza. Once again, the uh, bastion of enlightenment that is social media, we had people on TikTok rediscovering a letter that bin laden wrote to america in 2002 explaining his justification for 9-11 and all these people reading this letter are like hey he's got some great points i i kind of agree with them uh so raymond ibrahim who has also read the letter and has known about the letter for two decades author of the book the al-qaeda reader joins us and explains why you know it should be obvious that no bin laden did not have a good point also in this hour Back at the fall assembly in November, the U.S. bishops voted to advance the cause of beatification for Father Isaac Hecker, who was the founder of the Paulist Fathers. Hecker is a very important figure in American Catholic history, but most people today likely aren't too familiar with him. 
So John Farina helps to get, helps us to get to know him better. Uh, John Farina is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University and was the editor-in-chief of the Paulist Press series, Classics of American Spirituality and Sources of American Spirituality. Uh, John's the author of many books, including An American Experience of God, The Spirituality of Isaac Hecker, and is also the editor of Isaac T. Hecker, The Diary, Romantic Religion, and Antebellum America. So certainly somebody who can help us get to know this man better. So once again, in this hour... Why is Bin Laden suddenly popular in American social media? And who is Isaac Ecker? All of that coming up in this hour of the 2023 countdown after this news break. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, December 22nd. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria family of funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The Supreme Court, for now, will not take up a case about whether Donald Trump is immune from prosecution for alleged crimes committed while he was president. The high court today turned down a request from federal special counsel Jack Smith to expedite the case involving Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The Supreme Court order today means there's a growing chance that Trump's federal trial will not end before the 2024 election. Smith wanted the trial to start in March, but now the question of immunity is getting booted back to the lower courts. This is the first trial where Trump could face jail time if convicted. The most stressful part of the holiday season hits today. Bree Tennis with the details. Kayak did a study, and it turns out the most stressful day of the year is today, specifically at 12.25 p.m. That's when they say Christmas anxiety is at its worst. And it's not one thing. It's an accumulation of the countdown to the holiday. The food, the presents, the wrapping, family, and the budget. And you're not alone if you're stressed out. 66% of Americans say they are, too. I'm Bree Tennis. And more than 140 million people are expected to Christmas shop tomorrow on Super Saturday. The National Retail Federation is expecting 142 million people to get last-minute gifts the Saturday before Christmas. 37% of Super Saturday shoppers are planning to close out their online carts and hit the stores to ensure their goodies are under the tree in time. Meantime, Metro North Railroad is rolling out its shopper special trains to and from New York City, which are longer to accommodate more shoppers. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number 16. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Raymond Ibrahim is a widely published author, public speaker, Middle East and Islam specialist. His book, Defenders of the West, takes a look at Christian heroes who stood against Islam. Uh, he's also published Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, and The Al-Qaeda Reader. Uh, he's provided expert testimony for Islam-related lawsuits and has testified before Congress regarding the conceptual failures that dominate American discourse concerning Islam and the worsening plight of Egypt's Christian Copts. He was born and raised in the U.S. by Coptic Egyptian parents who were born and raised in the Middle East and is fluent in both English and Arabic. You can find more at RaymondIbrahim.com. Raymond, good to have you back. Great to be with you again, Al. So were you surprised when you saw this, uh, you know, this viral... Uh, phenomenon regarding Osama bin Laden's, bin Laden's letter to America? 
yeah, it, it was it was some serious deja vu for me. <laughs> uh, I, it, it, these people, you know, it came, it got, it went viral on TikTok, and um, these people were treating it like our eyes have finally been opened. It's an epiphany. We've seen the light. This man has shown us, you know, what's going on and, and why the U.S. is involved in these wars and the role of Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it's just uh, you know, it suggests that there's been a complete time warp or gap because. We've been there before. We've discussed his letters extensively, yep. and we've shown specifically. I've actually shown in my in my book, The Al Qaeda Reader, how um, Osama bin Laden completely contradicts what he says to the West when he's speaking to fellow Muslims. So it's uh, it's sad to see these young people, uh, but it's also reflective of the state of society that you know just, just these little you know silly things. Or it's not silly at the time. Of course, it was always big, but it's really discredited. So they're kind of, you know, they need to catch up with what's going on, and we can definitely talk about how they're discredited because I yeah. think that's the main point. Uh, I mean, in the you know, in the very early part of the letter, he's uh, he's trying to answer the question, "Why are we fighting and opposing you?" This is a letter to America, but he says, "When the Muslims conquered Palestine and drove out the Romans in AD six thirty eight, Palestine and Jerusalem returned to Islam." the religion of all the prophets. Therefore, the call to a historical right to Palestine cannot be raised against the Islamic Ummah that believes in all the prophets of Allah, and we make no distinction between them. So the claim here is that what's Israel doing there at all? Muslims conquered that territory in 638. They're the rightful inheritors of it, and I assume then Israel has no right to exist in that state. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Uh, according, and Osama was basically what he just said. There is standard Islamic teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, once an area is, they use the word, they euphemize. They say they call it an opening, which is the Arabic word fatha, which is the Palestinian name, of course. Um, but it really means conquest. But it's an opening because since Islam came and brought the light of Islam has come in, it's a good thing. So uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land was actually conquered by the Muslims around 637, 638. And since it was conquered, according to mainstream Islamic teaching, it is once and always part of the Islamic Ummah. So this actually applies also to places like Spain, um, because it was once conquered and part of the Islamic world. Uh, you know, one way or the other, it needs to be brought back eventually. But obviously, you know, you know the, the main con- point of contention is Israel because it's right smack in the heart of the Middle East, and it's a much more recent sting than you know the the eviction of the Muslims from Spain. But so technically, that's the case. But the thing with you know the thing with Osama bin Laden is way back in I think 2006, I wrote an article and it was called "The Two Faces of Al Qaeda," and it came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And the whole point was to show that everything he says to the West is very well crafted and actually uh, invokes sort of leftist, you know, paradigms that are intelligible and sensible to a lot of Western people. So it'll talk about, uh, you know, the, the poor Palestinians and the oppressive uh, Israelis. It'll talk about anything and everything that, you know, it talk, they talked about racism, him and uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahri, and how Americans and Westerners are racist and how black people must join with Al-Qaeda. So they've said everything, including that America is evil because it's, it's, it has bad environmental practices and refused to sign the Kyoto Protocol. Mm-hmm. So they definitely knew how to push the right buttons. But then when you looked at what they wrote to fellow Muslims, 
they made it crystal clear. They didn't even use these terms. They didn't say America. They didn't say Israel. They didn't talk about any of this. This was all ignored, and they used classical Islamic terms. All of these places and peoples, Americans, Israelis, everyone was called an infidel or an Arabic kafir. And all that Al-Qaeda stressed is, by nature, there's nothing they can do to ever make us live at peace with them. We always have to go, and when the time comes and when we're able, we have to conquer all of these people, Americans, Israelis, not because of a uh, territorial dispute with the Palestinians, but because they're non-Muslims. And so, you know, think of the Islamic State and ISIS. They were actually, to me, I remember thinking, you know, ISIS is a breath of fresh air because they stopped <laughs> lying what right. Al-Qaeda used to do. So Al-Qaeda just really had these two faces. Um, on the one hand, talking to Muslims, they sounded like ISIS, which we know is very brutal and savage. But to, to Westerners, they totally spoke a very Western language, and that's what made them uh, very tricky. Uh, but so it's really sad and unfortunate to see that that sort of thing is once again, you know, out of, pulled a, you know, in a vacuum and no context. And here's Osama bin Laden, the guy behind 9-11 and the deaths of 3,000 Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And you got all these TikTokers who are basically siding with them and saying, yeah, we, we see the light now, thanks to this guy. <laughs> how do, I think, uh, how, how do nations like Egypt uh, or Jordan uh, come to accept Israel? And, you know, Egypt has a peace treaty with uh, you have to acknowledge their right to exist, don't you, before you can sign a peace yeah, treaty? So how do you? Yeah. How do they do that? How do the leaders of, you know, how did Anwar Sadat do that in light of well, Islam, mainstream yeah. Islamic teaching? Well, so first, uh, mainstream Islamic teaching, as draconian and as supremacist as it is, it also allows a lot of flexibility. And so it'll, it allows, um, and they even cite Muhammad. In fact, Yasser Arafat was once criticized for um, making a sort of, you know, uh, he, for, so I don't remember if it was the Oslo Accord, but something he was really criticized for offering too many concessions to Israel, supposedly. And his response, which was cryptic to most people, but what it was, he referenced something that the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, did. Um, he basically, what Muhammad had done is he made a temporary truce when he was weaker with his pagan uh, neighbors. And when he got stronger, Muhammad, he went on the offenses and reneged on the truce, mm -hmm. on the treaty. <laughs> and so Arafat was essentially saying, that's what I'm doing, okay, where we Palestinians at this point are in a weakened position, so we will make this concession, but this is not something I'm sticking to, obviously, when the time comes. So I think you can apply that uh, from an Islamic juridical point of view to these countries that you mentioned, Jordan and Egypt. Um, I know whatever the leader, the political leader's um, motive is, you, you can rest assured that the Islamic jurists who support them are using this logic, which is basically, okay, yeah, we'll make a peace with you because it's the, that's the best we got at this point, okay? Yeah. So I think that's, that's partially, but also I would argue that there's a lot of real politique involved amongst these, but not, not everyone is a, is a rabid foaming at the mouth, ISIS, you know, <laughs> right, right. fanatic. So a lot of these, um, obviously Jordan and so forth, they also are approaching it from a realistic perspective that, you know, Israel is here to stay, so you have to parlay with them to some extent instead of, instead of constantly being miserable and fighting. Um, so it's yeah, it, there's it's this you know different different concepts and different ways of twisting them around. I was um, reading an essay by Dor Gold, who was I believe a former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, 
and he had written a book called Hatred's Kingdom somewhere around 2002, and it was a, a look at the tone of Muslim preaching in the mosques of Saudi Arabia. It was based on his doctoral dissertation. And the essay I read just, uh, well, it's actually two years old, I think. In it, he says that Saudi Arabia is no longer sending money to Hamas, that there's been a change in the way the morality police operate, and that he seemed to think that Saudi Arabia was going through some major changes because of this new crown prince. Can you give me a, an idea of what you think is happening there? Yeah, I've heard the same thing and familiar with it, and a lot of, a lot of reports of that nature are emanating from there. I think to some extent it's legit, but I think it's being exaggerated. Um, and and the, and the way I know that is he, is that Prince hasn't been overthrown or killed, because if he if he pushes it if he goes too far, um, he, that that is what would happen. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I think there are incremental uh, changes, and they're probably or in fact they are amongst their own citizens uh, rationalizing again. You know I, the mis- the misconception people have is that they think Islamic law is very harsh, and it is. The teachings are harsh, but. There's a lot of loopholes and, and leeways around it. And um, so a lot of the things, so for example, something like uh, allowing women to drive, let's say, which to us seems like a wow, okay, they made some progress in that case. Um, they could easily come up with some simple loophole. And then you, even your most, uh, you know, rabid so-called Wahhabi would be okay with it. So I think you're having very, very small change, but it's not a, par- a paradigm shift whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. Um, if it was a paradigm shift, it would be a completely different ball game. It's just um, they are making moderate changes, and they are still working within Islamic law and Sharia, and I think that's the main point. Um, the, the, this letter to America uh, that you have in the Al-Qaeda reader uh, also, you know, rejects immorality, debauchery, fornication, homosexuality, intoxicants, gambling, uh, usury. And and do you think that the people who were coming out in favor of this document last week, do you think they actually read it through? <laughs> I, I had the same exact impression. Um, a lot of the things that he attacks, which are probably the few things that we would agree with, um, <laughs> are the are the things that these TikTok people, uh, I'm sure, would not agree with. Right. So even even within that letter itself, uh, to your average, you know, like I said, at least the TikTok Gen Z types, that letter itself, even though it's crafted in a propagandistic way not to offend Americans, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's made it's meant to make them feel guilty, but it's not meant to. Um, outrage him by saying, hey, you're an infidel and we're going to kill you. But even within it, it still has, you know, strong condemnation of things that maybe 20 years ago, a lot of Americans would have felt a little uh, bashful about, but today they definitely don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, Raymond, thanks so much. Great talking with you again. Really appreciate your work and your time with us. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Al. Thank you. Raymond Ibrahim, again, uh, we'll have links to his site, RaymondIbrahim.com. And uh, again, this is an eye. The Al Qaeda reader is an eye opener. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Do you ever wish you had more breaks from the daily demands of kids, chores, and work? Getting time for yourself is important, but a better way to stave off parental burnout is by examining how we manage our daily stress. 
Ask yourself this. Are you able to ask for help from your family? Or do you just passively, and maybe resentfully, meet everyone else's demands? Do you have routines that create a good flow in your day? Or do you find yourself constantly running from one mini-crisis to the next? The liturgy of domestic church life helps families create relationships, routines, and rituals that tame the craziness, make life easier on everyone, especially mom and dad. And when you do get a break, you'll be able to enjoy it more, too. To learn more about the liturgy of domestic church life, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Now. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John 14. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord, Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord, Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number 15.
I'm Al Cresta. At the fall assembly, the U.S. bishops voted to advance the cause of beatification for Father Isaac Hecker, founder of the Paulist Fathers. Hecker is an important figure in American Catholic history, and yet I think it's fair to say most American Catholics are simply unfamiliar with him. My guest, Dr. John Farina, helps us to get to know him a little bit, bit better. He's Associate Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. He was the editor-in-chief of the Paulist Press series, Classics of American Spirituality. And he's the author of many books, including An American Experience of God, The Spirituality of Isaac Hecker. And he's editor of Isaac T. Hecker, The Diary, Romantic Religion, and Antebellum America. And Professor Farina, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Al. It's my pleasure. Let's let's uh, take a look at what the bishops did. Um, it's, was this a long time coming? Well, I guess it depends. I think in the in the, in the history of our our panoply of saints, it's not. It's not. Okay. Uh, you know, the cause was open now. Maybe oh, it's maybe been fifteen years or or not much more than that. So I think it's moving along fairly well. Oh, good, good. So, do we address him now as servant of God? Yes, I think we we do. I think I think that this that this step that the bishops just took doesn't give him a new title. Yeah. Okay. So he still has the servant of God title. Well, let's let's discuss his life. Uh, he's born in eighteen nineteen, I believe. And um, tell me a little bit about his parents. Well, I was thinking of you, Al. Uh, we don't know one another, but I was looking a little bit at your background, and I saw that you were uh, started your ministry as a as an evangelical pastor. Is yes, that right. Yes, that's true. So you would like Hecker because he was a Protestant, <laughs> and uh, his mother was a devout Methodist, and she was part of a very active Methodist church in New York. And we have the records; we have good records from the early 1800s that are actually part of the collection at the New York Public Library. So I was able years ago now to trace her involvement there. And, you know, so they had, in all probability, well, she was a member of these home groups, and, you know, Methodists, they yeah. come together to encourage one another at home, be accountable to one another in prayer, Bible study, and um, he must have witnessed this as a young man. His father we know less about. He's really sort of absent. Hmm. Um, it's strange. He has, he has a, uh, a brother and a sister, two brothers, and the two brothers, one of them becomes a prominent Catholic, and the other uh, is an becomes an Episcopalian, and they're, they're a prominent, they become a prominent family because they're, they have a, uh, what starts off as a small baking, flour baking business. And it becomes quite large. The Hecker Mills at Croton became um, quite big, and George especially was very generous to Isaac and became a Catholic along with him. <laughs> and really, without him, there would be no Paulist fathers, probably. Wow. So, uh, Isaac, I know, was a, a, a real searcher. Uh, t tell me what drove him. Well, you know, it's a real wonderful lens through which you can look at um the 19th century in America, the 19th, 19th century has, a, has this beautiful panorama of religious experience. I mean, you remember what was going on in the country in the early national and the antebellum period. 
it was this dynamic change and electric motion, and especially in a place like New York, where hundreds and thousands of people would come through that city every year. And uh, so he was, uh, even though he was certainly exposes the youth to Methodism. He doesn't talk much about it. Hmm. When, he, when he first starts, he's in his early 20s, and he, he starts the thing which I called later when I published it, The Early Diary. But it's just a, really a commonplace book, you know, which was something where it was sort of a cross between a diary and a notepad where he'd be reading, like he was reading a lot of German romantics like um, Goethe and Schelling and people like this, mm-hmm. and John Paul Richter. And he, he, he copied down long segments and notes, and then he'd go into some reflection on his inner states. So he was very much drawn that way from his earliest writings, which would have been, I think they commence around 1843 or the earliest diary entries. And is he, is he I mean, that was a very, there was a religious ferment in America at that time, it was the origins of Mormonism, um, I, I think the, uh, and you would know best, uh, the uh, the uh, movement associated with um, um, what we call now the Churches of Christ or Christian Churches or Disciples of Christ. Um, right. The Restoration Movement, that's what I was thinking of. That was right. going on. And the Adventist. And yeah, that. that's yeah. right, the Adventist as well. Um, did he... Did he visit them? Did he show an interest yes, in any of them? He does. He he is a seeker. Uh, his, he, he knows of a guy named Parley Parker Pratt, who was a famous Mormon evangelism, evangelist working in New York City. And he talks with some pretty good knowledge of the Order of Enoch and their way of life. He's dealing with the social question. He wants to find out what the, you know, the, the, role religion plays in society and what role religion plays in social transformation. Mm-hmm. So he meets um, Isaac, uh, he meets Orestes Brownson, who comes to New York and gives a speech in a, a local uh, political party called the Local Focos, which are local focus were actually, uh, in, you know, um, matches where you could strike them like our modern matches. Oh. They, they call them local focus because <laughs> give you a sense of, you know, sort of troublemaker starting fires. Okay. But Brownson, of course, was still a Protestant and a very prominent one. And he came and talked about the role of religion in social change. Remember, these were the days when Ralph Waldo Emerson, whom uh, Hecker came to know, said that every gentleman had in his vest pocket a plan for renewing society. <laughs> So wow. this was common in the air, and but he was drawn to the religious element of it, and um, so he with Brownson. Brownson was one of the founding members of the thing called the Transcendentalist Club in Boston before he was a Catholic, and so Hecker meets these Transcendentalists, and that actually at Brownson's advice goes and lives at Brook Farm. Wow, he's very good friends with Henry David Thoreau. Actually, stays in his house for a few weeks knows George Ripley, Emerson, uh, Charles Dana. So he's really and, among uh, the intellectual elite of that era. He is, he is, and, and his brothers are paying for his way. He can afford to do it, and they, they realize he's sort of inclined that way, and they're, they're supportive of him. They don't insist that he be back in the, you know, working in the family biz. Okay, okay. And what did so he... So he really goes through, 
he really goes through a whole kind of inner revolution, which he writes down very carefully in this thing called the Early Diary between 1843 and 45, where he's dealing with the question of the transcendentalists were famous for an emphasis on experience and immediate sort of revelation through mm -hmm. experience, very much influenced by the romantic mood in America. I mean, you had to look at one example of the you know, impact of romanticism in America on American culture, it would probably be the, the transcendentalists. Yes, okay. And so he, he, and he, what did he think living at, um, you know, the, at these, uh, like, Brook Farm and Fruitlands, what was his experience? What did he think of them as uh, pilot plants for, for uh, American social change? Well, he thought he was, he liked these people, and he got along with them very well. He went to Fruitlands, and a guy named, you know, this was Louisa May Alcott's dad, Bronson Alcott, yeah. ran it. And she tells some stories in Little Women about taking cold showers there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he was, they actually had this guy named Charles Daniel, who was a British sort of uh, social reformer, religious guy. And I came up years ago, I actually found the listing of the books they had in their little library at, book, at Fruitlands, which was, you know, just like a small farm in the outskirts of Boston. And they had really one of the better collections of Catholic mystical religious tracts and, and uh, devotional writers. Wow. St. Francis, St. Ignatius, uh, Fenelon, Guillaume, Fenelon, uh, Molinos, uh, uh, Jacob Burma, you know, it was an extraordinary library. So he loves that stuff. He, he has this sort of, you know, mystical bent. Mm -hmm. But he also has this practical side of being an American without any kind of elite, you know, experience and, and wanting and being having a very active side to balance that contemplative uh, attrait that he has. What is it that draws him to Catholicism? I think that one of the quest one of the things is. He, he has a very rich and keen experience of the Holy Spirit. He says when he's an old man writing in the 1880s that throughout his life, he felt the nearness of the, of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that is really the main characteristic of his spirituality. I was so happy to hear Father Dolan, um, Bishop Cardinal Dolan, speak about this. I remember we knew one another when he was just Cardinal Dolan, when he was at the Nuncio Church, and we had a little group of Catholic historians and of course, he is a you know an American Catholic historian. So I was so happy when he when he gave his address to the, the bishops' conference recently, talk about the devotion that Hecker had to the Holy Spirit, huh. and yeah. I thought that was right on. So Hecker has this, but he's quite he's 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 asking the fundamental questions. Well, how can I know it's true? Yeah. How can I test it? What role does the community have? And you know that's a very Catholic question. And of course. Romanticism was a very Catholic thing. Romanticism, they're going back to Rome. They, they, they idolized the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was a reaction against the Enlightenment. Remember, I mean, if you think of, well, there was a famous French track called L'Homme Machine, Man the Machine, as a sort of typical Enlightenment track, you know? Yeah. Everything's orderly and, and mechanical, and we can understand the laws of nature. Then the Romantics come out and they emphasize mystery, and horror in the Grimm's fairy tales, and uh, uh, Olmsted in Central Park, where the design instead of beautiful federal symmetry is all winding and wild like nature. 
And so this, he's, he's, this is him. And so he's got to say, well, if, if, I, if I follow that, what's to stop me from going astray, being deluded? Gotcha. Hold it there, in fact. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. And again, this is the question. Uh, how do I uh, have confidence that I'm on the right path um, as I follow the Spirit? And uh, what's to help me stay uh, uh, within the proper framework? My guest, Professor John Farina of George Mason University. Our topic, Isaac Hecker. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Whom does Jesus invite to enter the kingdom of heaven? The Catholic Catechism tells us he invites all to enter. Originally announced to the Israelites, the kingdom is now open to people of every nation. But to enter that kingdom, one must accept Jesus' word. The kingdom belongs to the poor and lowly with whom Jesus identifies. The poor and lowly means those who have accepted the kingdom with humble hearts. To the little ones, the Father is pleased to reveal what is hidden from the wise and the learned. Jesus makes active love toward the poor of every kind a condition for entering the kingdom. Jesus invites sinners into the kingdom and speaks of the joy in heaven over the repentance of just one sinner. Jesus' invitation to the kingdom comes in the form of parables. To enter the kingdom 
Mere words are not enough, however. Deeds are also demanded. One must give everything. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He was a pope, a saint, and a doctor of the church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. Pope St. Gregory I the Great is one of only four popes honored as the Great. Among his many achievements was sending missionaries across northern Europe, especially St. Augustine of Canterbury, who brought Christ to the people of England. In a pun, Pope Gregory called the English people angels. He died in 604. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. The best, 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 best of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 15. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Professor John Farina at George Mason University. He's editor-in-chief of the Paulist Press series, Classics of American Spirituality, and author of um, an, an American Experience of God, The Spirituality of Isaac Hecker, and... Um, Father Hecker is, in fact, the topic of our conversation here. Before the break, uh, Professor, we were uh, talking about uh, his experience of the Holy Spirit and him also asking the question of um, what's to keep me uh, on on the direct street path here, and how does he resolve that? Well, it's it's not so much a look at, you know, somebody like Newman or something, a contemporary of him whom he knew, looking at the marks of the church, uh, you know, more a traditional sort of apologetic. It's really back to this experiential thing. He, he becomes convinced that the spirit that's leading him interiorly is, is, is the same spirit that leads the church. Ah, okay. And he does, this, he does this in a rather unsystematic way, again, following this romantic mood and this uh, emphasis in his own experience. But he's He's very committed to it. He never wavers once he, and he, you know, he, he meets Catholics. And Brownson is pushing him in this direction. Brownson's much more of the intellectual, and the, even though he's not a Catholic, he's pushing him with the traditional arguments for the church. And Hegger accepts them, but then he really goes over when he feels this leading of this spirit. Spirit, yeah. And, uh, and, and he's converted, <laughs> and he becomes... He becomes a, a redemptorist, which is strange because he's German American. So he, he joins this group like in a in a in a moment. And he signs up one day, and then he you know he runs down and gets the permission of the the uh, provincial in Baltimore. Is on a ship the next morning, sailing to Belgium, where he goes into a, a redemptorist um, monastery and, and goes to formation there. He comes out, comes back to America. As with a group of other Protestants, three other guys who are, are, are Protestant converts, and they're together in New York, and they want to do missions to non-Catholics. <laughs> and the Redemptors want to do missions to German-American Catholic immigrants. Oh, that's interesting. And this becomes a problem, and they, uh, they bounce, they, the, the, the provincial actually... Um, uh, expels expels Hecker and Hecker being Hecker goes to Rome to protest goes to, the, <laughs> to see the vicar general his brother buys the ticket he goes he meets the head of propaganda Fide a cardinal Barnabal and of course you know back in those in the 1840s and now it's the early 50s um, America is the crown jewel in the in the mission empire as it were in the mission field and um so he gets the support of Barnabo, he gets his, and then 
Pius IX himself intercedes and artfully creates a kind of compromise whereby uh, he can uh, leave the Redemptorist and gets permission to start the Paulist Fathers, wow. which becomes the first congregation of American, you know, of North American priests. That's, that is great. Um, and then he does all this Methodist stuff. He does all the stuff he saw the Methodists doing. Like <laughs> they had a magazine, they had a publication society. He starts the Paulist Press, which they call the Catholic Publication Society. He starts the Catholic World Magazine, which is publishing every every uh, every week, I think. Or maybe it's a monthly then, but it's a, it's a big operation. Yeah, and he and he becomes, and then he starts doing these missions, and he's doing them to non-Catholics. Yeah. And he goes <laughs> in. He she, you get a kick out of this. He goes. He takes off his clerics. He dresses like a, a secular gentleman and goes to the lyceums, which you know are are you know, kind of public lecture yeah. halls. Yep. And, and you know, along with Mark Twain and people like this, he shows up. What does he talk about? He talks about why Catholics venerate Mary, you know, <laughs> why we why we believe in the Pope and these most uh, controversial topics. But does it in this very ironic, open, uh, intellectually honest way, and he becomes very popular. <laughs> That's great. Um, tell me about uh, he he ends up going to, to the uh, to Rome for the uh, First Vatican Council. Uh, why, yes. why does he Why does I he go? I want to emphasize this last part of his life, because because of various reasons, people emphasize only the part that we've gotten to thus far in the last 17 or 18 years of his life, they don't talk about it. And the reason they don't talk about it, because his name is mentioned in the controversy called Americanism, which, which happens 11 years after he dies in 1899, the letter that Leo XIII sends to the, the, car, the Archbishop of Baltimore, Gibbons, condemning so-called false Americanism, and he actually names Isaac Hecker. Wow. So wow. this has cast a pall on that later years, and one of the exciting things that we're seeing happening now is that we're looking freshly at those last 17 years. He became a, a star of the American church scene. He addresses in the 60s is really the height of his ministry. He's going all over the country, uh, both getting parish missions and doing these secular missions, he addresses the Second uh, Plenary Council of Baltimore, the bishops, on the state of the church in America, and becomes a real expert, as it were, in interpreting the Catholic Church in America to the uh, Europeans. Because he's in Europe because of his training and because of his controversial uh, uh, run with the, the Redemptors early on. And, and then he, he goes to the Second Vatican Council of the Paritas, First Vatican Council. The First Vatican Council, thank you. Yes, he's not that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the First Vatican Council, he's there as the Paredes, and um, he becomes a spokesman for for the church in America to the Europeans, and a spokesman for what's going on in the European church and in the Vatican to the American bishops and the American Catholics. Mm-hmm. So he, he plays this extraordinary role at the end of his life. And and even but then he get it's complicated because he becomes seriously ill when he comes back from the second the first Vatican Council in 1871 he stays after he stays for several months and almost a year before he comes home he experiences this physical deterioration which is profound it goes on for the next 17 years oh. and he's never able to do what he used to do and it's a real spiritual trial but. 
we've had a tendency because of the way his first biographer who was a pious disciple named Walter Elliott writes about it. He just portrays his inner spiritual sufferings as if everybody would go along would say, Oh, this is such a holy man. Hmm. What happens with this Americanist controversy is that after he dies in 88, there's a French translation of this book called the life of father Hecker, which is pious disciple Elliott writes and becomes part of this battle between traditionalists and progressives, progressives saying, you know, the American is a model of a new priest who can reconcile Catholicism with liberalism, and the traditionalists saying, no, he's a Protestant. Wow. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it becomes very bitter. Yeah. But he was, in fact, doing both and remaining very faithful to the Church, and even to Leo XIII, who his last document that he writes uh, a couple of months before he dies, he publishes it in his magazine, is on the on the work of Leo XIII, which he roundly praises Leo for being able to negotiate this difficult interaction between the church and state in, in the in the in the era in which he finds himself. You know this 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 heresy of Americanism. It's often called the Phantom Heresy. How yes. is, how is it regarded now in in among church historians? Well, I think we're we're getting beyond the idea of. I think the Paulists initially just kind of went underground. Okay. I mean, I love the Paulists, but they were you know they were a small group. They've never been more than even at their height, like two hundred and twenty men. Okay, now they're significantly less. But you know, so they were just you know their founder is named in this papal scolding, as it were. Yeah, uh, and and so then they become very much you know they want to continue these special ministries. But right from the beginning, they also have this parish work, which Hecker thought they were saddled with. And there becomes this kind of tug of war between the parish people and the white people who want to be special ministries. Mm. But um, so I think that the last part of his life was just sort of never talked about yeah. much. Yeah. And I've been talking about it a great deal now. We just had a symposium last spring on the old Hecker, the old Hecker for a new age, I called it. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, there's no evidence that he ever denied any of the um, truths of the faith or the morals. I mean, right? No, he really didn't. Yeah. He really didn't. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen every jot and tittle that we have because I was archivist for the Pauls too, an historian, and so I had. I, I've seen all that stuff, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. As a matter of fact, there's a great deal to be proud of because he had this. Even with papal infallibility, you know, all the American bishops were inopportunists because they were living in a Protestant country that was deeply anti-Catholic. Yeah, yeah. The last thing they wanted to do was have one more Catholic doctrine to explain to their Protestant I think who didn't like him anyway. Newman was and originally so, an inopportunist too, wasn't he? Yeah, a yeah. lot of them were. So yeah, the, the, Catholic, the Americans left before the vote, so they didn't have to vote. But they, the, but when, when that vote went down, I mean, right from the get-go, Hecker says, you know what? For 400 years, the Church has been dealing with this question of external authority. It's settled now. Yeah. Now we can turn to the interior work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, very good. And well, there's a whole Holy Spirit movement. And the other guy that does this is, is uh, Cardinal Manning, the British, British guy, who's a big uh, ultramontanist. But he also writes on the work of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And, uh, and Hecker and he are corresponding, saying, yes, now it's time to emphasize the work of the Holy Spirit because we know now 
there's no contradiction when rightly understood between the work in the soul and the work in the church yeah. and the work in society. Yeah. And the, the key to social reform is not social progress from the top down, but the renewal of the individual, the restoration of the individual, who then listens to the Spirit and responds and, and acts in the way that is going to renew society. How does he understand this uh, 17 years of illness? Does he see it as the hand of God? How does he deal with it? Yeah. It's, you know, it, we have some things like interior states. You know, these guys are very proper. When he, when he would leave a note, say, on in, notes on interior states, he meant that and stuff that he wasn't telling anybody else. And part of the problem is that, that Elliot just shares that in his book. And it sounds awful. I mean, he'll say stuff like, uh, I'm a dead man. Like, he leaves the Paulist, actually. He comes back from the Vatican Council, and then he goes back to Europe to get better. And it's just back then, the, the doctors he's seeing are, uh, are saying, go to Europe and take the tour and take the waters, you know, mm -hmm. these, uh, the, you know find these fountains and these uh, water cures and these baths. And so he's traveling around, but he's also... You know, we used to think he's just doing nothing but being sick. No, no, no. He had he had been commended right before the First Vatican Council by no no one less than Pope uh, Pius the Ninth for his work on the Apostolate. So he knows all these these people in the Apostolate of the Press in Europe, and he's meeting with them. And he's and we see what, what the way they talk about him. He's writing about his soul, how he's how he's just suffering right. in his in his private notes. And they're writing about this dynamic guy that opened up this whole world of the thriving church in America and inspired them so in Europe. <laughs> wow. And so this is what he's doing. And then he comes home and he knows, he knows the European scene better than anybody. Wow. So he's this, and he literally says that God is leading him. He says, I, I, he doesn't want to come back after a while. And he writes to the Paulist and he says, God is leading me to become an international Catholic. Wow. And... But he dies before that's really accomplished. He comes home. He comes home out of obedience. He dies in 1888 in New York. Yeah, with the Paulist, with St. Paul the Apostle Church in New York. Is is his book, The Church in the Age, still in print? It is. Well, you know, you can get these things now. They're just they're just photographs of the actual one. Okay. Buy that through Amazon for nothing. You should read it. Okay. Professor, thank you so much. That was excellent. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not. If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I gotta vent. Is this so? 
It's all theory, somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's all theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before you vent. Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us over the last two hours. I would be remiss if I did not offer a congratulations to another member of the EWTN radio family, Eucharist Radio in Morganfield, Kentucky, celebrating 14 years with us. Congrats to Richard Nally and everybody else at WEUC from all of your friends here at EWTN Radio. Uh, we are wrapping up this week of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you want to follow up on any of those conversations, we'll have uh, material available for you in the Cresta Guest Archives including Rachel Den Hollander's book on how she came to forgiveness after what she suffered at the hands of Larry Nasser. We'll have material there on Israel, as well as uh, Raymond Ibrahim's great book, The Al-Qaeda Reader. And since it's going to be, uh, we're going into the weekend, and it's one of those years where uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Day will both reach us before we're on the air with you again. So from all of us at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN, have a very blessed fourth Sunday of Advent and have a very Merry Christmas. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save us. We'll see you again next week on Cresta in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.